0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. year anniversary of my podcast, the date on which I released my first episode, Homicide in a Manner Not Known, about the maybe murder of David Shearer in 1905, passed a few days ago. I was thinking it was in a few days, which would give me time to prepare another episode, but oh well. So there's two episodes this week, this, an- this anthology episode of Smaller Stories, and then a regular one in a few days. So, enjoy. First up is the tale of an LA couple who attempted to resurrect their son from the Los Angeles Times, November 3rd, 1924. Ritualistic ceremonies by which the parents of Stephen Videnoff, 15 years of age, attempted to bring him back to life yesterday after he had been electrocuted attracted a large crowd to the family home in 161.5 Clarence Street, but failed to restore life. The boy, according to police, was killed when he attempted to cut a cable carrying a charge of 4,400 volts, which had fallen from the poles at 6th and Clarence Streets. Moses Aaronin of 305 South Gless Street, his companion, summoned the police. When the police ambulance arrived, Vidanov was lying in the street dead, the ambulance driver picked up the body and carried it home. At the family home, preparations were immediately made to restore life. Two hours later, a second call was received by the police, and when driver Bailey and Nurse Giddings of the ambulance arrived, they found the body buried in a shallow grave in the backyard, the ground wetted with the garden hose, and a curious crowd of relatives and spectators gathered around. Nurse Giddings uncovered the body ascertained with the aid of a stethoscope that there was no pulse, and ordered the parents to carry the body back inside the house under penalty of arrest. Coroner Nance was informed of the death and delayed assigning an undertaker to take charge of the body on the request of the parents, that they be allowed to keep it in the house until today. Next we have the 1902 tale of a Pennsylvania boy laboring under weird symptoms of insanity? Or is it hypnotism? I initially had confused this tale with a 1911 tale of Robert Nichols, which I featured in episode 29. Philadelphia, May 16th. In the insane asylum at School Killhaven, PA, is a case which presents a novel study for those interested in hypnotism and for the medical profession in general. Edwin Devere, 14 years old, a raving maniac, is expected to die within a month from exhaustion. Has he been hypnotized? Does he only believe he was hypnotized? Has he hypnotized himself? These are the three questions which are puzzling the physicians and which they will probably never be able to answer, for the boy's insanity is so violent and persistent that there is little likelihood he will ever regain his senses. In his delirium, he cries frequently, and has done so since the first. I told that man not to hypnotize me. I don't want to be hypnotized. Please get my mind back for me. Over and over again, these cries are uttered. They have given rise to the suspicion that the boy has been hypnotized, that he was still under hypnotic influence, and that he would remain so until the man who hypnotized him was found to relieve him. DeVere lived at Pottsville, Pennsylvania, and was afflicted first on April 22nd. At his home the previous evening, his parents noticed that he was apparently excited. He was rather nervous when he went to bed. The next morning he was much worse, and in the afternoon he became unconscious, and Dr. C.D. Miller was summoned. He endeavored to restore the boy, but the delirium gradually grew more pronounced until at length it became necessary to administer morphine. But when the boy awoke, the violent delirium continued. On Friday of the same week, After a consultation with Dr. William Robinson, it was decided to send him to the asylum. His cries about not desiring some person to hypnotize him aroused the suspicion that some man had him under hypnotic influence. Inquiries showed that there was some ground for it. A street faker, in selling his wares, had pretended to be a hypnotist, and in making his speech waved his arms and made passes until he had attracted a crowd. De Veer had for some years been a good hypnotic subject, easily influenced. Many a time at his request, his playmates have hypnotized him, and the youngsters got a great deal of fun out of it. The boy himself also was a hypnotist, and eager to see any such ex- exhibition that appeared in the town. In the belief that the street faker had affected him, the parents of the boy instituted a vigorous search for the man. As yet they have failed to find him, Many physicians, however, do not believe the man guilty and declare that if he had hypnotized the boy, the lad's symptoms would not be what they are, not necessarily violent at all, and that the influence would gradually wear off. They believe the boy is self-hypnotized. The symptoms are of acute hysteria rather than of hypnosis. It is supposed that after seeing the faker perform, the novelty of the thing impressed Devere, and he has gradually absorbed the idea that he was hypnotized. Aside from a little excitement, he was in a normal condition on Monday night, some hours after the alleged influence was exerted, and it was not until 18 hours later he became delirious. In that period, it is said, the belief that he was hypnotized could have so grown upon him that he really would have been under the influence of auto-hypnotism. If he is self-hypnotized, an interesting query arises. Can he withdraw himself from the condition? The doctors believe not. They think it impossible to reduce his delirium, and fear he will never be so near normal that his mind may be diverted from the hypnotic belief. The belief of the physicians is that the lad will die of exhaustion in three weeks or a month. Next, a few ghostly tales. First up are two that I had uh, marked to put in this episode, and I later realized that they were describing the same event. The first is a New York World article from May 17th, 1894, and the second is an article from that same newspaper from the next day. The second article, though, has a far less serious tone than the first. Newark, New Jersey, May 17th. If the ghost that haunts the corner of and Madison streets, this city, shows up tonight, or any other night, he, she, or it will be met with, war- with a warm reception. The whole neighborhood is in a hubbub over the apparition. The police have promised to club the daylight, or rather midnight, out of it, and the German barber on the corner has taken down his old Schutzenfest rifle and loaded it for bear. This ghost has been walking at odd intervals for about a month. It is a white-sheeted apparition, but contrary to those of its kind that stalk the streets of Rome, it does not squeak and gibber, but when pursued, lets off a bass-pitched hollow moon but simply freezes the blood of those who hear it. Everybody in the vicinity has seen it one or more times, and several have had adventures with it. It was at first supposed to issue from 204 Elm Street a very respectable two-story frame house among the best in the neighborhood. The house is 75 years old, and a long time ago, it is said, a man hanged himself in one of the rooms. Since that time, it has been commonly reported that the house was haunted. Sam Skall, the news agent at the Market Street station, says that he heard that report when he was a boy, and tenants always complained that furniture jumped about of its own, and the dishes rattled in the most unaccountable manner. Tenants always moved out after a very short residence with their ghostly lodgers. Mrs. Van Loon, a very pleasant and matter-of-fact young woman, now occupies the house, and she declares that she has never been disturbed by any untoward manifestations. She has not seen the ghost, and thinks it a shame that her house should be brought into the story at all. She is not a bit afraid, and denounces the whole affair as an outrage. There is no doubt, however, that nearly everybody living near that corner has seen the ghost. Gus Jennings says he saw it last night, but he is the only one to whom it has appeared since night before last. Miss Hattie Johnson, of 207 Elm Street, saw it last Monday night, and in her fright, She ran against a tree and bumped her nose so badly that she could not go to work the next day. Dan Rudin of 224 Elm Street also saw it the same night, and some of the people around here say he has not stopped running yet. But that is not true, as he was perfectly composed this morning and at work. William Perrine of 203 Elm Street also saw the spook standing near the Catholic school on Madison Street, half a block from Elm. It was on the other side of the street, and he did not bother himself to cross over. He was in a hurry to get home. Sam Skull, the news agent, a small man with an eagle eye, made the only effort recorded to catch the ghost. At about 9.30 o'clock Tuesday night, he was sitting with his brother in front of the house at 206 Elm Street when he saw the white-robed figure appear at the corner of Madison Street. He made a dash for it, and throwing up its arms, it uttered a most terrifying groan and fled up Madison Street. When Skull got to the corner, it was not in sight, and he just actually knows that it could not have gotten any in anywhere. It simply vanished by one of those mysterious methods that ghosts employ. Skull could not say whether the specter was male or female. It looked like someone wrapped from head to foot in a sheet. F.W. Stargart, the barber at the corner, has a story all his own which introduces another ghost. He is convinced that there's two of them. On Tuesday night, he was standing at about 9 o'clock in the Elm Street doorway of his shop. All down the block, the people were sitting on their stoops talking and laughing. Suddenly, he saw a white figure steal out of Madison Street and glide noiselessly down as far as 204 Elm Street. At the same moment, another person, or spirit, poked its head around the corner of his shop, and watched the movements of the white specter. He does not know whether the second apparition was a man or a woman, but he is sure that it either wore bangs or had its hair cut in a pompadour. He is likely to recognize the style of coiffure worn even by a ghost, and if he is in any doubt about it, it is most unlikely that anyone can be sure about it. However, he watched the white figure until it reached the front of 204 Elm Street. As it passed the women and children on the stoops and some of the men, they screeched and ran into the house. Just then, he, she, or it of the bangs or pompadour went and the white figure ran back to the corner and both disappeared. Barbara Stargast didn't think anything of the matter at the time, but he has since gotten out his gun and is waiting for a reappearance of the ghost. Police Lieutenant Prout of that precinct says he will have men on hand to stop this monkey business if it is reported. The house at 204 Elm Street belongs to the Brooks Estate. It is not known that anybody has a reason to depreciate the value of that property, a very common source of ghost scares. It is believed that someone in the neighborhood is playing a prank. If so, someone stands a very healthy chance of getting shot if the sport is repeated. Newark, New Jersey, May 18th. A number of policemen detailed to capture the ghost that nightly attracts a throng of thousands on the street for two blocks on either side of 204 Elm Street are today studying standard works on apparitions and consulting clairvoyants to learn how their purpose can be accomplished. It has been proposed that the specter be lassoed, and it was even suggested that one of the Wild West Show cowboys be engaged to throw the rope, but the sages of Newark say thin air cannot be tied to a string. And ghosts are supposed to be thin air. The same objection is made to the proposal that the mysterious nothing be shot, and there is, in addition, the fear that if the attempt to do this was made, someone or possibly a half dozen on the other side of the ghost would be in the way of the bullet. The interest the police are taking in this particular ghost is due to the fact that since the news of its nightly appearance became public, Elm Street from Jefferson to Monroe. Has been barred to tr- has been barred in traffic by a crowd of from five thousand to ten thousand waiting for the apparition. Last night, as early as six o'clock, the crowd began to gather, and when darkness indicated that it was time for the ghost to do its turn, there was an assemblage waiting that must must have made it blush with pride if specters can blush at the evidence of its popularity. Millionaires and tramps, bootblacks and boys in velvet knickerbockers, buds of society and girls from the cigarette shop touched elbows as they gazed anxiously at the haunted house and challenged the orders of officers to clear the streets. Homes had been left deserted as harvest places for thieves. Boys in the neighborhood were unruly. Men were almost riotous, and altogether the police were confronted with so many difficulties that the conclusion has been reached that they must catch the ghost or appeal to the militia to preserve order. There is a To Let sign on the the haunted house the upper floor of being vacant. Mrs. Van Loon lives on the ground floor, but she is not able to solve the mystery. The building is thoroughly explored almost every day, even the police having searched every nook and corner. But they return to headquarters with nothing but blanched faces as a result. One man has attempted to rent the place, but he refused to give his name, and his mysterious actions only increase the sensation. The last witness of the specter to tell his experience was F.W. Stargard, a barber on the corner where the vision has always appeared. He heard it go, psst, psst and, th- and then turning, he saw the awful specter. He was so frightened, it is said, that he simply exclaimed, shampoo, sir, and then the ghost decamped. Others allege that it has a peculiar way of screeching instead of moaning, as specters should do, and it is hinted that the mysterious being might be a live joker. At any rate, it is creating a sensation, and the police are receiving letters every day suggesting means of putting it out of the way. One of these communications suggested it be electrocuted, it being argued that as ghosts are nothing, as is also electricity, the two might fight a dulcet for supremacy. When the letter was read, it is said that Captain Daly exclaimed, first catch your ghost, and that is what a squad of his men has been detailed to do. The Knickerbocker ghost was seen around Brooklyn in November 1894. Once more, the coverage of this event in the New York Times for November 23rd is none too serious. The annex of the famous Lane ghost did not create greater excitement in its day than does a white, grim apparition that is frightening residents of the 27th Ward, Brooklyn. That section of the city offers exceptional advantages to ghosts. It is a rocky, bleak, lonesome district. The streets are only partly cut through, and at night the darkness is intense. A specter with a strong calcium light may stand on a rock almost anywhere and be visible for blocks. Several populous cemeteries are in the neighborhood, and it is reported that uneasy spirits have been seen to sneak through the gates, and eluding the police, float over into the vacant lots to scare belated pedestrians. There are a number of empty houses in the vicinity, and these, it is said, are favorite resorts of the ghosts on rainy nights. The ghost which is at present disturbing the midnight rambles of the men and women in this district is that of a woman who goes about in the scanniest attire, with disheveled hair and bare feet, and falls into a fit of hysterics as soon as anyone approaches. This apparition was first seen a week ago by five young women, who screamed and ran home and told their brothers. The young, woman, the young men, on the following night, armed themselves with revolvers and went out to where their sisters saw the ghost. There was no sight of it until they were in the middle of a large lot when the white figure suddenly arose from the ground in front of them and waved its long lean arms and uttered a weird cry that chilled their blood. The five brave young men forgot all about their revolvers and turning about ran in five different directions home where they rushed to their rooms and did not feel safe until they had jumped into bed and pulled the quilts and comforters over their heads. They told their experience to their friends the next day, and that night a party of about 200 gathered in the vacant lots to lay the ghost. The hysterical Shade evidently knew what they were up to and stayed in her grave. The brave 200 waited until long past midnight and then went home, declaring that they had been fooled. Peter Wolfel was among the the skeptical, and on the succeeding evening, he declared that he was not afraid to go out on the sand lots and brave her ghostly ladyship. So alone he started out to interview her. He returned home about 1 a.m. with a face white with terror. He declared that while walking across the lots near Irving and Knickerbocker Avenues, he was confronted by the specter, who performed the serpentine dance while he remained rooted to the ground. He said he was unable to move until, with a moaning wail, the ghost dissolved into the air. Then he ran home. Woeful's story created more excitement, and the neighbors decided to try again to catch the ghost. But the nights were foggy and unpropitious for ghost observations. It would be impossible to distinguish the specter from the fog around it. It was agreed to wait until last night and in the meantime to enlist the services of a policeman from the 20th precinct if there is one thing more than another for which captain kitzer is noted it is aver- it is his aversion to ghosts of all kinds and when he learned that one was prowling about in his precinct he declared that he would send a squad of men with a patrol wagon to catch it a reporter for the new york times went out to the scene of the ghost wandering last the ghost's wanderings last night and found about three hundred men, most of whom were armed to the teeth with toothpicks and other dangerous weapons. Some had revolvers protruding from their pockets; others had resurrected old, rusty old army swords, which they grasped firmly, prepared for action, action at an instant's notice. There is always a comedian in such a crowd, and last night he was arrayed in the fragments of an ancient suit of armor. The breastplate did not fit him very well and his shield was rather heavy, but with an old sword swung over his shoulder, he looked like a very formidable opponent. Only the bravest kind of ghost would have had the temerity to challenge him. Policeman Holliday was there to represent the might and majesty of the department, but he did not have much faith in the ghost. "'I'll tell you something on the quiet,' he said to the reporter. "'I don't believe these here ghost stories. "'If there's ghosts around, why haven't I seen them?' I'll tell you what I think it is. I think it's whiskey. The worst whiskey that's sold on the island is sold right here in the 20th. I've known men, after drinking it, to go home and rob their own houses. And it will make a man see almost anything. Ghosts, snakes, or anything else. I'm disgusted with this ghost business. It makes me sick. At the same time, if a ghost comes, I'll run it in. The crowd waited and watched and waited. Several times there were false alarms. Small parties were formed to scour the hills and beat up the ghost, and three or four times, there were cries that it was coming, but it didn't come. As midnight approached, the watchers began to examine the air closely, but not even a suspicion of a ghost hovered near them. And slowly, they dispersed and returned to their homes. The reporter then went to police headquarters to see policeman Thomas E. Boone, the veteran and fearless guardian of the municipal building, about it. Mr Boone had just made one of his big regular one of his regular rounds of the big building and having satisfied himself that no suspicious characters were lurking in any of the dark corners was willing to sit down and talk. "No," said Mr Boone. "I have not much faith in these ghost stories. There used to be ghosts in Brooklyn, but since superintendent Campbell took charge of the police department they have all been driven away. The superintendent took a determined stand on that question as soon as he got into office." and a general order was issued directing the captains to be vigilant and rid the city of apparitions specters and all sorts of ghosts this order has been strictly obeyed and there is not today or rather tonight a place in the city of brooklyn where a ghost can just walk without being run in this is true of even of the annex districts as soon as the sub precincts were organized commissioner wells ordered that no ghost walking that no ghost walking should be allowed in them. This is one of the reasons why we don't want to have our city consolidated with New York. If such a dire disaster could befall Brooklyn, all our anti-ghost orders would be rescinded, and our streets would become haunted night and day. Yes, you may safely say that the Knickerbocker Avenue ghost is a myth. On May 6, 1904, the Hartford Republican of Kentucky carried the tale of a headless aeronaut. Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, May 3rd. The people residing along quiet Chaplin River are suffering the intense agony of ghostly horrors. Several weeks ago, Peter Carey, a well-known resident while out late at night, observed a fierce-looking apparatus passing through the air above him at at a rapid rate. It resembled a shooting meteor or comet, but moved back and forth over the same aerial course. On closer observation, he could see distinctly a headless man apparently standing on what appeared to be a large plank. He told his neighbors of the mystifying sights which he had witnessed, and the whole neighborhood stood at watch the following night, and promptly at ten o'clock, the headless man began darting back through the atmosphere. The more scholarly residents of the Chaplin River section, after viewing the headless man with the instruments, have about come to the conclusion that the terrifying object is an amateur genius who has invented a flying machine and that he is making a personal test of it at night in order to prevent the publicity of it, before he gets the apparatus thoroughly perfected. This is a very reasonable conclusion, and serves to account for the man appearing headless, for in passing through the air at such great velocity, he would be compelled to hold his head toward his breast to prevent the wind from taking his breath. The tale of a North Carolina wild woman was carried in the New York Times on October 20th, 1882. In this story, as is the usual in old stories of wild people, what may be a Bigfoot-type creature is also theorized to be an actual genuine human. Charlotte, North Carolina, October 19th. The people of Clear Creek Township, Caboris County, in this state, for several weeks past have been greatly excited by the appearance in that section of a female, whose long, unkempt hair and haggard looks have given them reason to believe that she is wild. The creature makes her appearance at the most untimely hours, terrorizing women and children by her screams and horrible gibberings. It is believed that she has been hiding in the forests and swamps of this section for a year or more. Such is the terror produced by her unnatural demeanor that hundreds of men have hunted the swamps for days in a vain attempt to secure the wild creature. Bloodhounds have been on her track, but for some mysterious reason have failed to follow the trail given them. This has only tended to mystify the country folk all the more. An attempt has been made to organize a band of 400 men for the purpose of prosecuting the search. One of those who have seen the woman describes her as not more than 5 feet in height, with long black hair, black glaring eyes, and bloody from cuts inflicted upon her person by a knife. One thing has added to the excitement is a rumor that the creature is a, notor- is a notorious Negro murderer who has been hiding from the law officers for over a year, and who, it is said, has at times made his appearance in this section in female attire. Finally, the tale of a witch rock in Rhode Island, around which none could plow, and the bizarre happenings near it. In the midst of a deep wood, not far from this beautiful village in western Rhode Island, Is an enchanted rock. It is a common boulder about four feet across the top and not more than two feet high. Around it is a singular shallow furrow. Tall trees bend above it, and it is only in midsummer that the vertical sun pierces the interlacing boughs. The whole world bears an uncanny reputation and local tradition, and within the memory of the older inhabitants witches are said to have been seen flitting about the outskirts of the forest. The neighborhood of the rock is especially shunned, and belated children returning from a burying trip in in the hills hasten their footsteps as they pass the dreadful boulder. More than 200 years ago, the regicides Goff and Whaley fled from Point Judith to this place, and since that time, the stone has been known as Witch Rock. An aged Rhode Islander related its legend the other day. A couple of hundred years ago, he said, when settlers had begun to break ground in the neighborhood of Hopkins Hill. A witch made her home in a cabin that had been abandoned by a pioneer close to Witch Rock. Everything within a hundred yards of the rock became enchanted, and she caused the settlers many annoyance by her pranks. Tools that were left out overnight mysteriously disappeared. Cattle were afflicted with singular diseases. Stones were hurled through window panes by unseen hands and whenever a hailstorm or hurricane swept over the hills, destroying the crops, people saw her flying through the air, driving the storm onward with her broom. At last she was driven out of the settlement, but the rock and all the ground about it remained enchanted to this day. I can recollect when the wood was cleared land, but it was never possible to plow within a hundred yards of the bewitched stone. As soon as the witch's line was passed, it is said, off went the plow chip, which is now called the landslide, and which at that time was of wood. You might fasten the chip on again if you could find it, but off it would go just as soon as the team was started. The last attempt to plow near the rock was made by an old man named Reynolds, about 80 or 90 years ago. He said that he would put on a plow chip so it would stay, and many neighbors gathered to see the trial. Reynolds started into the field, and the plow ran smoothly enough until he crossed the witch's line, and then all of a sudden the chip flew off. The plow edged away, and there were, many, there were a good many white faces, for nobody knew what might happen next. But the old plowman was not at all disheartened. He soon found the chip in the furrow, under a turf, and he picked it up and clapped it on the framework. Again the team was starting, but in a jiffy away flew the chip again and vanished in the air, and the oxen were found to be unyoked. Mr. Reynolds hunted the, furrow, hunted the furrow over, but he could not find the missing piece. After this, the crowd edged away, slowly at first, but as soon as they were out of the old man's sight, away they sped home. Reynolds said that as soon as the people ran away, a crow came from the north, perched itself on a dead oak nearby, and began to cry, Call, call, call. At this, John Hopkins, who owned the, the magical piece of land, and who had been attracted from his home to the spot after the the fright of the people, cried back, Squawk, Pat Jenkins. When the crow came flying over, the plow chip came down out of the air, and the crow changed into an old woman with a cocked hat on. She was pursued by the men to the rock when she turned into a cat and disappeared under its mysterious underground recesses. Shovels were fetched, and willing hands dug around and under the rock. But no trace was found of the cat, After that, the lot was left to grow up to weeds, wild grass, and the cabin fell to pieces about the Enchanted Rock, and finally the thick wood that you now see covered the tract, hiding the witch's stone from the world. Witch's Rock is rarely visited, except by hunters and others who have heard of its reputation. The furrow about the boulder, which is still distinctly traceable, is pointed out as the trench excavated by the farmer's shovels, Nearly a hundred years ago, the effort to unwitch the black witch cat that had eluded them. And that's the end of this bonus episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77. At gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew signing off. shows like this one at straightupstrange.com